0: When was the last time you were scared? And how did you respond to that fear? Maybe it was on Monday when that massive storm rolled through town. and You responded by putting sandbags in front of your basement door so that your basement doesn't flood. Tragically, some fears can be big, given the hardships we can face. And yet, even our tiny fears have their way of eliciting big responses from us. The mouse scurries across the floor, and the resident jumps up on the couch. I may be speaking from personal experience. Here's another. I am terrified of the dentist. So when I have to go, I respond by asking for as much Novocaine as one would give a small horse. I don't want to feel my face. And I know we have faithful members of this church who are uh, helpful dentists, and I promise you it's nothing personal. It's just when I think about the drills and the picks and the nerves, I tremble. What about you? What causes you to tremble? What should cause you to tremble and how should you respond the people the prophet Isaiah spoke to and the people he spoke about were faced with these questions turn to Isaiah 19 it's on page 581 of the red Bibles around you page 581 Isaiah lived in the 8th century BC he was a prophet which means he was God's mouthpiece, his messenger. And Isaiah was God's mouthpiece to God's people who lived in the kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah's message for Judah was that God was going to judge his people for their sins. Sin is rebellion against God. It's doing what we want instead of what God wants. It's our fallen human Nature, All people, including you and me, sin, which means sin is universal. And since sin is universal, God's judgment is too. So God would not only judge his people for their sins, but also the nations of the world for their sins. And God judges sinners because he is just. But Isaiah's message doesn't end there. He says God would also have mercy on the nations. And he tells of a day when God would have a people made up of people from all nations. Which makes Isaiah sound a lot like Matthew's gospel we've been walking through these last few weeks. So in Matthew, last week, we talked about the justice of God, especially the aspects of it that relate to salvation. But before we get to salvation, Isaiah begins this chapter with another aspect of justice. Condemnation. Look now at Isaiah 19, starting in verse 1, and hear the word of the living God. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians. And they will fight each against another and each against his neighbor. City against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out. And I will confound their counsel. And they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up. And the river will be dry and parched. And its canals will become foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. The workers in comb flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of this land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish, The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, And they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. And that day the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send them a Savior and Defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel. My inheritance. What would this prophecy instill in God's people? And what response would be required of them? Likewise, we are now hearing this message. What should we do in light of it? Two things, and this, these will be our points for this morning. In light of Isaiah's message, we should, number one, fear God. And number two... Return to God. In light of Isaiah's message, we should, point number one, fear God. And point number two, return to God. And my prayer for this morning is that as we behold God and His Word, we would tremble before Him and trust Him. First, point number one, fear God. This point is going to cover verses 1 to 17. In light of Isaiah's message, we should fear God because he is the judge of the nations. In light of Isaiah's message, we should fear God because he is the judge of the nations. Look with me at verse 1. We have an oracle concerning Egypt. An oracle is a prophecy, which is more than just a prediction or a guess. It is an announcement of what's to come. And here's specifically what's coming for Egypt. Now, why Egypt? Well, it's because God is using them as an example to teach his people. This may surprise you to hear, given Egypt formerly enslaved God's people, but at the point of Isaiah's message, God's people had actually looked to Egypt for protection. So remember, we're in the 8th century now. The enslavement of Israel and the exodus was hundreds of years prior to Isaiah's message. But now God's people had turned to Egypt and trusted them for protection against Assyria. Assyria was another nation that was threatening Judah. Egypt was a global superpower at the time, and the people of Judah were a wimpy nation. So they looked to Egypt and their idols for refuge instead of looking to God. Chapter 20, which we'll study uh, next week, Lord willing, uh, speaks more about Judah's temptation to trust Egypt. And so Isaiah pronounces judgment on Egypt to Judah to instruct them, just as your boss at work may publicly correct one employee in hopes of instructing the whole office. So in verse 1 of chapter 19, Isaiah says, Behold the Lord. And those three words are in so many ways a summary of this passage. Look, see, behold the Lord who is coming. And verse 1 says he's coming upon a swift, Cloud. Isaiah uses that imagery because some of Egypt's idols were said to ride upon the clouds. Isaiah is saying, move over idols. The real God is riding into town and he is going to pull up in your car to show that he is the one who rules above. And so verse 1 says the idols will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. It almost sounds like another rematch of the Exodus, doesn't it? God versus Egypt. The grand showdown of the Old Testament. And yet, in so many ways, that showdown and this showdown are no competition at all. After all, do you see in verse 2 how handedly God handles the Egyptians? Look with me. He stirs up Egyptian against Egyptian And they will fight each against another. They can't even fight God because they'll be too busy fighting each other as God brings chaos within their nation. And this sounds so much like what happened at the Tower of Babel. Read Genesis 11 about it later today. At Babel, people came against God, so God turned people against people. Instead of loving their neighbors, Egypt will be out for their neighbors. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. Strife is a result of God's judgment. And so verse 3 says, The spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out. Which is another way of saying Egypt will lose heart. And the Egyptians will respond how we all naturally respond when we're, when we're terrified. They'll run. They'll run to what they trust in. Do you see that in the second half of verse 3? The Egyptians will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. Necromancers are people who could supposedly talk to the dead. Friends, fear is a powerful revealer of trust. Because fear exposes what or who we run to. And at this point, the Egyptians didn't run to God because they didn't trust God. They trusted their idols. There's some irony here. You're going to fight the living God by going to the dead? This is the insanity of trusting something or someone more than you trust God. Did the Egyptians not recall how God confounded their sorcerers before the Exodus, when Aaron's staff turned into a snake and ate the Egyptian snakes, picturing how God would swallow up Egypt? It's crazy to return to these idols. And yet, too often, brothers and sisters, when we're afraid, we all act a little crazy, don't we? We run to other things instead of God. So we, be, we fear being alone in our old age. So we run to a relationship we know we shouldn't be in. Grandparents, you fear that your kids aren't raising their kids correctly. So you run to the idol of control start to intervene in ways and take the job that God gave those parents to do. We fear not looking a certain way, so we run to comparing ourselves to others or doing things in the name of health that are actually unhealthy. Matt Merker said this, the absurdity of sin is that it's both self-centered and self-destructive. Sin is crazy, and sin is a cruel master. Verse 4, Isaiah continues, saying, God will hand the Egyptians over into the hand of a hard master and fierce king. It's not clear who this king and master is, but the point God is making is that God is handing Egypt, the ones who were the hard taskmasters, to a hard taskmaster. Do you see the irony? The bully nation will get bullied by another nation. This is what the God of hosts, as he's been called throughout Isaiah, the God of the armies of heaven declares. And so Egypt, crumbling from the inside with civil war, will be oppressed from the outside by another nation. And Isaiah's not done yet. Verse 5 talks about the Nile River being dried up. Verse 6 talks about it becoming foul, which sounds a lot like when God turned the Nile to blood centuries earlier during the ten plagues. Sometimes God will repeatedly show us the futility of our idols. And I do think the Nile was a kind of idol. It was a lifeline For the Egyptians, an immovable source of security, they thought. No doubt the Nile was a gift from God because he created it. But the Egyptians treated a temporary gift, which was meant to point to God, and treated it as if it could last forever, as if it was God. The Egyptians took a good thing and treated it as if it was an ultimate thing. That's so often how our idols come about, isn't it? Taking a good thing, treating it as if it's an ultimate thing. And so we fear losing them. After all, a dried up river means the fish and the plants are gone. So fishermen and farmers would get laid off. Verses 8 to 9 talk about how the fishermen and field workers mourn, lament and languish. Verse 10 says those who are the pillars of this society, those grassroots people who uphold it, they'll be crushed and grieved. It's a good reminder to those of us who live and work in a powerful city like Washington, D.C. The people and institutions which we think are bulletproof and, immo- and immovable are ultimately Finite. Verses 11 to 14 talk about the foolishness of different rulers in Egypt. From the princes of Zoan, which was the capital of Egypt at the time, and the princes of Memphis, another powerful city in ancient Egypt. Isaiah speaks about the foolishness of those princes all the way up to the foolishness of Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. And the rulers are not just fools, but their counselors are too. Verse 11 is clear. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. Isn't this what God's people had seen in their history? How Joseph, centuries before the Exodus, wisely interpreted Pharaoh's dreams while Pharaoh's counselors hadn't the slightest clue what to say. Friends, the Egyptians had voices they sought out when they were afraid, but those voices were stupid. They were dead. And I'm tempted to scoff at necromancy. You might be too. But what voices are you listening to when you're afraid? Which voices are giving you confidence in the face of your fears? A news outlet or Twitter feed? Ungodly friends? Brothers and sisters? There's a reason Psalm 1 says happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Friends, review your counselors. Because there is such a thing as bad company that corrupts good morals. And there's such a thing as bad advice. The voice we need is not the voice of the dead, but a living, active word which is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. Hold closest those who echo this voice to you. After all, time and time again in the scriptures, God proves that he confounds human wisdom as he conquers his enemies. And what we have seen so far is a complete Conquering. So all that the Egyptians trusted in socially, with their relationships with each other, and politically, with their relationships with other kingdoms, and physically, with the sustenance the Nile provided, and economically, with the work the Nile provided, and philosophically, with the wisdom the counselors provided, and religiously, with the security the idols provided, all of it was crushed by the Lord, God of hosts. And what is the effect of of this crushing, terror. And what can the Egyptians do about it? Verse 15, there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm, branch, or reed may do. When Isaiah says head or tail, he means from the greatest to the least, from the Pharaoh to the fisherman, Nothing can be done. And this judgment points so clearly to a final judgment that's coming. When the God of the the nations judges all nations, all peoples, and in that day, nothing can be done. So, if you're here, and you're not a Christian, this means the opportunity to return to God will not always be on the table. So please, don't presume you can figure stuff out with God whenever you want to. Please, don't presume that tomorrow is guaranteed or God will give you a second chance after you die. It is appointed for man to, li- to die once, then face judgment. And in that judgment, there will be nothing you can do. Which means today is the day of salvation. Cry out to God for mercy today while you still have the chance. Tomorrow, it's the devil's day. You don't know if it's going to come. I don't, but you will be held accountable for what you have heard today. And what you're hearing isn't merely a religious suggestion, option, or opinion. Like the people of Egypt here, like all people, before they trust in Jesus, you're a rebel against God, deserving of his wrath forever in hell. And he is calling you to end your rebellion. And this call could be your only call. He may not give it to you again. So I pray you take it. One of the reasons the scriptures tell us that God hasn't come yet in final judgment is so that you might take this call. But God won't wait forever. Come to him today. And it's okay if you come trembling. That was the effect of this conquering of the Egyptians. It gave them what they did not have before, fear of God. Look at verse 16. It says, "'In that day the Egyptians will be like women "'and tremble before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them.'" Verse 17, "'And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians.'" Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of, the purpose, of the, Lord, the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. Isaiah compares Egypt to women not because men are superior, but because men were soldiers at the time. So Isaiah uses this image of women not to comment on gender, but to picture those who are defenseless. For Egypt to be afraid of Judah is an insult because they always had a greater military than Judah, but now the roles reverse. Yet it's not so much Judah that Egypt fears, but Judah's God. Friends, what do you fear most in life? Failure? Exposure? Letting people down? Maybe your family? For some of you, getting a negative review at work would be the worst thing that could happen to you this coming week. But it doesn't have to be. And that's because there's a fear which we should submit all fears to, and that is the fear of the Lord. The Apostle Paul counted what others thought of him, and even what he thought of himself as a small thing, because he says it is the Lord who judges. Therefore, he writes in 1 Corinthians 4, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You want to grow in fearing God more and fearing other people or things less? Think more about the second coming of the Lord. That's what Paul did. He was controlled by the fear of the Lord who would judge the nations. What fears are controlling you? CHVC to encourage you. As I was writing this, I thought of so many of you who face fears. Bad news from the doctor, whatever it may be. So many of you face fears with faith in the Lord. By God's grace, I think our church is more of a faith factory than a fear factory. And if there's a fear being produced, it is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not just an emotion, but a posture in which we honor God with our life because we know he is the judge of our life, and so we tremble accordingly. We honor God primarily by obeying his word, which says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the hatred of evil. But Isaac, doesn't God's word also say in 1 John 4 that perfect love casts out fear? Yes, but that is the fear of finally being condemned. If we trust in Christ, that will not happen. Hallelujah. But just because we don't have that fear, that doesn't mean that we don't have any fear. As a kid, just because, just because I wasn't afraid that mama was going to throw me out of the house, that doesn't mean that I didn't fear mama at times. Kids, you get this. There is such a thing as healthy fear. And I don't just mean that only in the context of discipline. Praise God, many of us here revere our parents. We love them. We find them amazing. That kind of awe is also wrapped up in fearing the Lord. And so there is such a thing as healthy fear. Not all fear is bad, but being completely fearless, despite what our world says, is bad, because it means you don't fear God. And being unafraid of God is a mark of the wicked. Describing the wicked, Romans 3.18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. I was watching a a movie with my two-year-old daughter uh, in which the moral was, fear will be your greatest enemy. And I was like, that's not true. Ava, cover your ears. Don't listen to that mess. Friends, fearing God is foundational to our job description as humans. Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Hearing that, should terrify us because none of us has perfectly fulfilled this duty to fear God and obey him perfectly as he would require. And that is the great rub and the reason this sermon has a second half. Point two, return to God. This point will cover verses 18 to 25. In light of Isaiah's message, we should return to God because he is the hope of the nations. In light of Isaiah's message, we should return to God because he is the hope of the nations. God's not done with the Egyptians yet, and neither are we. Look at verse 18. In that day, there will, in that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. So we have this phrase, in that day. It is repeated six times in verses 16 to 25. And the natural question is, when is this day? And the text and the context, it simply isn't clear on when this day is or what most of these cities are in verse 18. Verse 18. And this lack of clarity makes sense when we remember that prophecies are like mountain ranges. So Just as we see one range, then another, then another, prophecies can have multiple fulfillments. And it's not always clear when one range ends and one range begins. Yet, the lack of clarity about specific dates or locations here doesn't take anything from the central point. The, the mountain Everest, this text points to, is that the final day is that final day when God's people from all nations are gathered together. And we get a picture of this gathering in verse 18. After all, did you see that the people in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan? Canaan was the promised land where God's people went after the exodus. Egypt will share in their language. No more will there be division, scattering, and strife, but unity. It's like Babel is being undone as people speak the same language. Egypt will share in this language because they will share in allegiance, verse 18 says, to the Lord of hosts. That is what conversion is a transfer of allegiances. No longer do your sins rule over you, the Lord of hosts does. You no longer ally with your sins, you ally with the Lord against your sins, so you fight to repent of them. Of course, we don't do so perfectly, but if you're converted, you'll do so regularly. And here Isaiah speaks of a dramatic conversion. You see this reference in verse 18 to the city of destruction. Your translation might say the city of the sun, if you have something different than the ESV. Uh, We're still not sure exactly what this city was, but it may have been a city called Helopius, where the Egyptian sun god was worshipped. So Jeremiah 43 recounts when Helopius was destroyed, which is why I think the ESV calls it the city of destruction. But what we should focus on is this city would no longer be a place of worshipping idols, but worshipping God. Friends, when we're converted, we undergo a worship shift. We no longer worship our work, our fun, our money, ourselves. But as God told his people right after the Exodus and the Ten Commandments, Mark read it earlier, we have no other God besides him. Converted people worship God. And so verse 19 speaks of God furniture. That would remind the Egyptians of God. A pillar at the border. So in verse 10, God had crushed the pillars of Egypt and now he establishes his own. And we also see in verse 19 another piece of furniture, an altar. Why an altar? Presumably so Egypt could sacrifice to God. God would train his new allegiance to begin to look to another, something outside themselves, to bear the punishment for for their sins. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is one of these whispers of the gospel in the Old Testament. We want to tune our ears to pick up on the echoes of the gospel in the Old Testament. But God, in his kindness, hasn't just given us an echo of the good news this morning. He has given us a megaphone. Verse 20, this furniture will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord, so not when they cry to idols, sorcerers, and mediums, but when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors. He will, he will, he will, say he will with me on three. One, two, three. He will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. Oh my goodness, if that isn't good news, I don't know what is. Friends, the point of this book is in no small part to teach you that you cannot save you. We do not, in and of ourselves, have the resources to work our way up to God. So, if we're to be saved, God would have to come down to us. And praise God, he did by sending his son, Jesus, who came and lived the life we should have lived. Jesus Jesus perfectly feared God and kept his commandments. The whole duty of man, fearing God, was kept by the Savior of man when he hung on the cross to be a sacrifice for sins. And Jesus was raised from the dead three days later so that anyone, And I mean anyone, whether you're as oppressive as Egypt or as oppressed as Judah, anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Christ will be forgiven of their sin and granted not to suffer under eternal wrath, but to enjoy eternal life with God. So, if you're here and you're not a Christian, Earlier, I talked about crying out to God for mercy. The reason you can get that mercy is because Jesus bore the punishment you deserve if you trust him. Won't you do that today, even while I'm preaching? After all, Jesus is coming again. The hope of the nations is also the judge of the nations. And he will come back in judgment. Turn from your sins. Cast yourself wholly on this Savior, Defender, Redeemer, and Friend, as we sang earlier. I love Isaiah calling the Savior a Defender in verse 18. Again, the irony is just so rich. Egypt, the people, God's people, look to for defense, they would now need a Defender. Okay, I have 400 sermons I want to preach on verse 20 alone, but we need to keep going. Verse 21, And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. Friends, if the gospel can be summarized as God himself gave himself to save us from himself, we can only know that because God makes himself known. We can only know. Know God because he makes himself known. Look at the flow of verse 21. The Lord first makes himself known, and then the Egyptians know the Lord. And notice that the Egyptians don't just know about the Lord, they've known about him since the Exodus. No, they know the Lord personally. And the Lord did personally visit. Egypt, Matthew 2, 13. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, Rise, take the child, Jesus, and flee to Egypt. God visited Egypt. Beloved, do you see how the Egyptians had to go and chase down their gods and idols and necromancers, but the God of hosts chases down Egypt and makes himself known? Knowing God leads to obeying God. That's what we see in the rest of verse 21. The Egyptians will worship and obey God. The Egyptians, the oppressors of the people of God, are now sons and daughters of God. We'll talk about this more next week, Lord willing. But the scandal of the gospel... Isn't that people sin horribly? The scandal of the gospel is that God forgives horrible sinners. No one is beyond God's mercy, which means whatever you did this past week, it may have been your most sinful week ever. There is still mercy. Here for you today. Return to the Lord. There's mercy for you. Maybe you're experiencing a severe mercy. After all, look at verse 22. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Striking and healing. If you've ever rebuked someone, or if you've ever been rebuked by someone, you know the tension between striking and healing. This is why Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You strike to help, to heal. You strike with the hope that person will leave sin and return to the Lord. Did you see that word, return, in verse 22? How can Egypt return to the Lord, though, if they were never with him originally? Well, all people were intended to have a relationship with God. But ever since Adam and Eve sinned, that relationship has been broken, and it needs to be reconciled. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 3. Isn't it amazing how much God sounds like a parent here? One reason God is the hope of the nations is because he is the father of the nations. He made them. And like a good parent, the Lord will sometimes humble us, discipline us, in order to heal us. Here's how King David puts it in Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. I want to say this again for the worst sinner In the room which to be clear is all y'all and me too there is mercy for you here today return to the Lord I understand you may be scared too but this is where the fear of the Lord is different than all other fears The way we deal with most fears is by turning away from them. But the fear of the Lord causes us to turn back to the Lord. The great paradox of repentance is that to escape God's wrath, we must run to God, not from him. The gospel has to retrain our instincts because running back to God is so counterintuitive to us, especially when we're ashamed right? Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they went and hid. And not just them, but have you ever really wronged someone? Like, you really blew it. Like, even self-righteous you can't defend what you have done. The last thing you want to see is that person, Alright, So, I recently uh, went to pick up my wife from the airport. She had flown halfway across the country with our two kids, Uh, who were melting down and I was getting ready I was gonna go get her flowers and win the awesome husband award Uh, so I head out uh, and I get there and she's like I'm at baggage claim one I'm like great so am I I'm just not seeing you and she's like okay that's fine I'm just next to the Starbucks and I'm like okay I'm I'm next to the Dunkin Donuts and then the phone goes quiet and she says I'm at BWI And then I go really quiet. (laughs) And I say, I'm a DCA. And it was a good hour of rush hour traffic before I got to BWI. Now, brothers and sisters, I dreaded the whole car ride there. (laughs) Because I knew I deserved a good lashing. Verbally, emotionally, right? (laughs) But Meg was kind when I got there. She sincerely said, it's okay. She didn't need my flowers, but I needed her grace. Brothers and sisters, when you return to the Lord, God will be gracious to you when you get there. Because his son took the lashing you deserve. By his wounds, we are healed. So, when in sin, don't run away. Return. Return to the Father. Cry out to him. He will hear, he will help he will heal. Come to him. Even if you come limping, he will come healing. His is a holy hospital. And he, Jesus, is the doctor of mercy. And he treats patients from all over the world. Isn't that what we saw last week in Matthew 12, a chapter that quotes Isaiah 42, which basically calls Jesus the hope of the Gentiles, the hope of the nations. And in Matthew 12, that hope wasn't just spoken of, it was displayed in the flesh. Jesus healed people, both physically and spiritually. And Jesus talked about the Ninevites, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, and how they received God's mercy, how they were healed. One reason God is the hope of the nations is because he is the healer of the nations. What's happening with Egypt is basically what happened with the Ninevites centuries before. The Lord sends a messenger to say, I am coming in judgment soon, so come to me now. Praise God the Ninevites did. What about Egypt? Verse 23. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. This highway between between the two nations is more so an image to show that Egypt and Assyria, two global superpowers at the time who fought one another, will no longer have walls between them, but bridges, unless we stop there. The point of this passage isn't world peace. That's a wonderful effect of the hope of the nation's coming in judgment, but that's not the point of his coming. We're not here to primarily look at these two nations, but to look at the one they're looking to, the one they're worshiping. Look at verse 23 again, how it ends. The Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. That's what we're made to do. Worship God together. This is why we evangelize anyone who will listen and why we send missionaries around the globe like those we prayed for earlier. It's because Revelation 5, we've read it earlier, speaks of this day when people from every tribe and nation will worship God together. And CHBC, our church Every local church is a dress rehearsal for that great day. Sometimes folks ask, should churches be multi-ethnic? Friends, why would we not want them to be? I understand in a fallen world, not all churches can be perfectly multi-ethnic. Ours isn't. The perfect display of this kind of unity will only happen on the last day. And I understand that diversity in of itself isn't the end goal, because after all, hell is diverse too. But that said, we should praise God for the ethnic diversity he has given us. He's done and is doing a good work here. Which means we should work against any threat to our ethnic diversity as we seek to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, as our church covenant says. And one thing that means is that we should all search out and confess and repent and ask God to show us any ethnic prejudice or favoritism we may harbor or support. And I know for many of y'all sitting here, one thing you fear is being called a racist. And many people are called that wrongly nowadays. But take that fear and submit it to your greatest fear the fear of the Lord, the Lord who strikes, who heals. Beloved, He will defend and deliver us. We don't have to hide. We can confess any ethnic favoritism we may partake partake in and be healed. So, brothers and sisters, why would we not join the psalmist and ask God to forgive our hidden faults? Just because we're not cognizant of our faults doesn't mean we don't have them. And any fault, even those hidden, can hinder our love for our neighbor. And any fault, even those hidden, is an offense to God. Brothers and sisters, God has saved people who aren't like us. So we now have the delight and the duty to love people who aren't like us. And we get to be united with them even here and now. And if we can do that, we'll do something no other institution on the planet can do. We can be used of our Father to help the world believe that he sent Jesus. Jesus prayed our unity would do just that in John 17. Surely that's part of what it means to be a blessing in the earth. Look at verse 24. We're almost done. And that day Israel will be The third, with Egypt and Assyria. And I think that means there will be some kind of alliance there. But the point is this next phrase. A blessing in the midst of the earth. I'm not sure what that means because I think it can mean so many things given that's what we were created to do. To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it to be a blessing in the earth. Through Abraham, all nations of the earth were to be blessed. Nations like Egypt, like Assyria, whom verse 25 says the Lord has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my people. Hands and Israel, my inheritance. I love those possessive pronouns. The judge of the nations, the hope of the nations, the father of the nations, the healer of the nations calls Egypt, Assyria, calls all who trust in Jesus his. Why? Would we not return to him day after day until that last day? After all, we're his. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would speed the day when every knee bows and confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Until that day, give us wisdom in loving our neighbors from all nations. Until all nations are gathered, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.